0: Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast, I'm Ben Rowey. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the upcoming national election in Papua New Guinea with Mahalopa Lavelle, a lecturer in economics at the University of Papua New Guinea. Hello, Maho.
1: Hi, Ben. Great to be on your podcast.
0: So Papua New Guinea's election will be held from the 2nd to the 22nd of July. It's coming up very soon. Um, Papua New Guinea's parliament has a five-year term and the last election was held in 2017. This is the first election since James Marape became prime minister in 2019. Papua New Guinea uses a form of preferential voting with each member elected to represent a single-member electorate. But if you were to compare PNG elections to Australian elections, that's about where the similarities end. Maho, the final list of candidates was announced today. We're recording on Monday. What does it reveal about, like, how big the field is, how many people are running in this election?
1: So in um, 2017, there was about 3,335 candidates that nominated. That was a fall of about 4% from 2012. Um, this elections, um, the the list that came out when nominations closed four weeks ago was about 3,493, so that was an increase of about uh, five to six percent. Um, but with the Supreme Court ruling um, two months ago that reinterpreted the constitutional amendment um, and, and stated basically that um, citizens with a criminal record from June, June 2002. Uh, wouldn't be eligible to contest, and um, the Electoral Commission has screened the number that I mentioned, over 3,400, and has reduced um, the number. Um, On today's um, national newspaper headline, three um, candidates have been struck out, so we're looking at possibly less than 3,400, but still an increase from 2017.
0: So 3,400, and that's over 118 electorates. So you're talking about 28, 29 candidates per seat on average running for each of these single member electorates. Maybe we start by talking a little bit about the constitutional structure so people understand what it's like, and then we'll get a little bit into how the elections work. Um, There are two kinds of electorates in Papua New Guinea. You've got an open electorate, so one of those per area. They're theoretically meant to represent similar numbers of people, but don't particularly do that particularly well Um, and that's increased from 89 at the last election to 96 and we probably will talk about the redistribution because this is the first redistribution we've seen since the 1970s and then on top of that each province elects an additional member so people get two votes um, but the provincial members just sit as members of the of the parliament but they also have a role in running the provincial government as well so is there anything on that about the seat the seat numbers and that structure before we get a little bit more into it?
1: Yes, so PNG's Parliament is unicameral as opposed to Australia which is bicameral, right and but um, the, the distribution of MPs, right So open MPs, which is the electorates that you mentioned and then the provincial MPs, was designed I think in the beginning to then transition to a bicameral parliament, which is in the case. So provinces are basically aggregates of open electorates. I um, mean, like you said, the Constitution, uh, it it stipulates that there should be an average. So the average is the quota across all seats, and um, it should have a 20 percent variation above and below the quota. Um, and, and that's um, parliament seats. And so that's the highest form of government. And then we have subnational governments. Um, so each open electorate has a district development authority. and. Um, that that's, uh, takes the form of a corporate structure where the open MP is the chairman, is, if you like, and then has has under them all the um, local-level governments. So the local-level governments are then an aggregation of all the um, ward levels, and these are um, appointed officials as well, which then sit in on the district development authority um, and then administer the electorate. And so under the... Um, under the LLG level, which is the local level, government level, then you have the ward um, level, which is an aggregation of uh, villages uh, and ranges for about 500 to 1,000 people. And um, at that ward level, the leaders are ward councillors and they're elected as well. Um, the elections of ward councillors and local level government presidents um, happen in the middle of the national election cycle. So we're having our general elections now, um, Two year, two and a half years after this, we'll have the local level government elections and the work council elections as well.
0: One of the things I, I find really interesting that's quite different. So there are provinces There once upon a time there was full provincial governments with with provincial assemblies and premiers and that kind of thing. But now the provincial MPs are kind of designated as the governor and there isn't really much of a democratic structure at the provincial level. Uh, one of the things I find interesting is in Australian politics, the parliament allocates money to causes, etc. but the individual MPs don't have that much say over the, how this money is spent in their electorates, whereas my understanding is in, in PNG, there are specific funds set up for each electorate that is then effectively given to the MP to allocate like they have responsibility so that these people are not just elected to be a collective Responsible for the whole country, even though they are, they also kind of have a specific governing role in their own electorate. You know, the in in my electorate in Parramatta, the specific member for Parramatta doesn't have specific power in their own right over spending for Parramatta. You know, they uh, they have to do that through the collective of the government. But in PNG, it's a bit different.
1: Yeah, that's correct. Um, so we have constitu- constituency development funds, CDFs. Um, which in PNG they're called District Service Improvement Program Funds, the DSIPs for open electorate, open electorates and Provincial Service Improvement Program Funds, PSIPs for provincial MPs, which at least since 2014 has been about 10 million kina allocated in budget. Um, When government fails to hit their budget targets, which has been the case for the last seven years at least, um, it's usually been on average 8 million kina by year's end. And so that's the amount of money that's um, given to each open MP, 8 million kina every year. Um, And it's part of the development budget. So it's basically an infrastructure fund that's basically meant to grow the economy and grow them at the subnational level. Um, Apart from the CDFs that are given to each MP, uh, there was a push to decentralization in 2014 under the former Prime Minister Pete O'Neill and basically other um, funding through traditional uh, government departments like health and education. There was a large, well, at least 30% of the health funding um, was then given to open MPs, um, open MPs through the district development authorities and provincial MPs had about 30 to 40% um, say in um, health and education funding. Um, in, In theory, at the district development authority level, which is um, shared by the Open MP, he has a 50% voting power and uh, 50% voting power of, um, say, decisions on the funding should be given to his um, his board, say, or the, the board that uh, comprises the LLG presidents. Um, that's in theory and practice. The um, Open MP has a lot of power and basically decides um, how the CDF should be spent.
0: And that brings us into. You mentioned something about the quotas of population for electorate. Um, in theory, the the way that electorates are distributed is pretty similar to how it works in Australia. You're meant to you have a twenty percent range, but you're meant to fit all the electorates within that, and redistributions are most be, meant to be regular. But unlike in Australia, the redistribution is not automatic. It's got to be passed through the parliament. And for a long time, they could not get any redistributions through. Right, there was a bunch of attempts. Uh, plans would be written. There would be consultations and reports and maps and everything. Um, so the last redistribution, proper one, was conducted in 1977, which I think was the, the this this voting system, this parliament kind of pre predated PNG independence. But that was in the first post independence parliament was when that redistribution happened until this year when we um, we thought it wasn't going to happen again and they created seven new electorates. Um, and I don't want to go into too much detail about what those electorates are, but just to say some of them were the seats that they've, rather than completely redrawing the map across the country, they've decided to split up a handful of seats that seem to have the greatest need to be redistributed. Some of the seats they've done that to were the ones with the largest population, but some of them were just... You know, geographically large, and then they've already legislated to create another six electorates in twenty twenty seven using the same methodology. So they are attempting that, but the the malapportionment across the country is still very big. You've
1: you've written a lot about this, so I'm not going to uh, really, really educate you. I guess, oh, but uh, from from what I've seen from the two thousand eleven census, is that I think there's a seven new electorates this year, um, five of them were large electorates, um, and they're pretty evenly distributed across PNG's four regions, which is the Highlands, the Islands, the Womas, and Southern region. And I guess in the six new electorates in 2027, there would be four of those are um, large electorates that should be split. Now, in theory, you could, um, com- because there are a number of um, electorates that are large, and there are also those that fall below the um, quota. And, and so you could amalgamate these smaller ones, but it's it's much easier to split large electorates. And
0: that's what the electro Commission has done. Very politically difficult to abolish a seat. Let's get in a little bit more to, and I don't know as much about this, the political geography of the country. So like you said, there's four regions. There's 20 provinces plus Bougainville and Port Moresby. Are there particular regions that um, have you know pack the most punch have have a lot more electorates are more critical to the to deciding elections?
1: Yes. So the Highlands um, province is about thirty nine to forty percent of PD's total population has about yes a third to forty percent of all the uh, electorates, well all the MPs in Parliament as well, and the Highlands is the uh, region with a lot of the the large resource projects that gold mines, put, plus the LNG project, which brings in a lot of government revenues about 20% of government revenue from the corporate income tax that they collect from that region. The political gravity from after Sir Michael Samara's reign has really shifted, so since at least 2011, it has shifted to the Highlands. They wield a lot of power, they wield a lot of numbers, and because they're culturally culturally similar, they tend to vote together. Um, and band together. So that's, yeah, the highlands versus the islands, Momasa and South, and and then because of a lot of um, their economic power, a lot of the other regions, uh, specifically each individual MP tends to follow, yeah, the political winds, basically, which are set by the highlands.
0: It's interesting because it's not a very urban country, Papua New Guinea, and so you look at the electoral map and you don't see... You know, there are three seats in Port Moresby and there's a couple of other urban electorates um, in like Rabaul and, and Lay, but you don't see big clusters of urban seats. But when you look at the map, you do notice that the highlands, the electorates there cover much smaller amounts of territory. There's just a lot more little seats all over the place. So it does suggest there's a... Because ge- geographically, it's the smallest of the regions, right? I mean, you could argue with the islands depending on if you count the water or not. But... Um, it covers a much smaller area than the other mainland regions um, but has more electorates because there's just much more population density there.
1: Yeah, that's correct. Um, and the highlands is very uh, – the, the terrains are difficult. It, it's – yeah, in the name, um, the altitude is pretty high. Um, and uh, what we see uh, demographically that they have a lot more children per family, and so um, the population growth has been very fast very high in that in that area.
0: Now, we might get into the political parties in a bit because it's, it's quite complicated and fluid, but are there particular, maybe the term is ideological or policy preferences that MPs from particular parts of the country tend to have, whether or not they're in a particular party?
1: No, so the um, party system, at least since independence, has been a vehicle for um, parliament power and Um, It is very fluid in that MPs can switch parties uh, midterm. There is no um, ideological base. There is no policy base. Uh, The National Research Institute in Pramosby ran a um, politics seminar basically inviting um, parties in in this election um, to really announce their policy platforms and then uh, really get questioned about them, so those fifty-three parties that will contest this election, twenty-six of those parties showed up for that seminar. Um, of the, of that twenty-six, about thirteen of them had um, coherence, uh, like a policy platform that was logically consistent. Uh, that had plans, like a five-year and ten-year plan, had uh, basically plans to revamp the um, the government departments, and the uh, the rest didn't. And Um, From that stat alone, you could um, project that out to the 53 parties, which is very little policy platform, just a vehicle for parliament power. And really, the importance is in parliament when um, uh, MPs start to switch and parties start to switch to either government or position.
0: So parties do become relevant when it comes to forming a government, right? You need to form a government that has a majority of MPs. Usually they don't just go for a bare minimum majority. They would go for a bit more than that, right? But they go for clusters of MPs to form government. Do we see now that, like, there is midterm parliamentary changes, but we now kind of, the parties have now, Set up their membership. That will then be the that will be the parties for the election, and then maybe that we'll see some more shifts after the election.
1: So I wrote a blog for the Development Policy Centre, um, which basically um, coincided with the the new MP database that the Development Policy Centre has put up for the tenth Parliament. So these elections um, will then give rise to the eleventh Parliament in PNG's history. Parliament is fragmented straight after the elections. Um, in 2017, for example, 21 parties were elected. And mm-hmm. that 20 those 21 parties were very small parties, mostly. Um, about only six or seven wielded a lot of power. And but by wielding a lot of power, I mean they had four or more MPs, and so they were pretty strong. Um, that number has grown to 25 over the course of the 10th Parliament. And straight after, um, The elections, according to the constitution, uh, the party with the largest number of wins is invited to form government. And between the elections and then parliament sitting, MPs start to switch parties. The number of independents goes down as independents start to switch into parties. And usually they um, they go into parties, the party with the highest number of wins. And so the People's National Congress, which is a party of the former prime minister, Pete O'Neill, Um, In 2017 was um, the party with about 29 uh, wins after the elections. And after MPs switching parties, went up to about um, 60 MPs. And so around 60 was enough to form government in 2017.
0: So did they just form government on their own with 60 or did they bring in other people as well?
1: Oh, they did. Um, So there was a governing coalition um, and, uh, for example, parties like the National Alliance. Pangu, um, which is the current um, leading uh, party for the governing coalition, was also in um, the governing coalition. So that number went up to about 80 um, when parliament sat in 2017.
0: Am I right to think like there's an office of leader of the opposition, there's a concept of being in the opposition, but the opposition is not really the alternative government, right? Like if, if you had one party that had a few more seats than the other in government, and a few people switched sides and the other side came into government, you would say that's an alternative. But if there's a midterm change of government, usually it involves quite a large share of the existing government defecting as well, right?
1: Yes, yes. So the opposition um, technically, like you said, should be the um, alternative government. Um, at least since 2011, there has been what's termed in the literature as a creeping tyranny, where uh, opposition has had numbers like 12 and 13. Um, to pass a bill in PNG's mm. parliament, you need at least a two-third majority. On average, um, the governing coalition has had about 80 MPs, and so they've been ramming through policies and, and bills. Um, and the opposition, yeah, has had few numbers. Uh, the midterm change, as you mentioned, is really a vote of no confidence. The vote of no confidence happens. So there's a grace period straight after the elections, and there's and that's a one and a half years, so 18 months. After the elections, or 18 months after the formation of a new government, and a year before the elections. And so, between that time, um, there can be a vote of confidence. There was a vote of confidence um, in in the last parliament, and um, that's where um, Peter O'Neill and his PNC party lost, and James Marape came into um, government. And, And like you mentioned um, defections from governing coalitions, say. According to the database that the Development Policy Centre has put up, there has been about 76 MPs that have switched at least once during the course of that parliament, and most of that switch was from government to opposition um, during the vote of confidence. And so that's how Marape came into power.
0: Now, Marape wasn't the leader of the opposition before he became prime minister, right? He was finance minister in O'Neill's government. He was a senior figure in the government before um, toppling the existing prime minister.
1: Yes, he was. He was a finance minister up until, so after 2017, up until uh, early 2019, when from his own words, he was disillusioned with a lot of um, the policy decisions that O'Neill had and uh, the way he was, uh, basically his decisions of government finances, and so he defected to the opposition, pulled a lot of MPs because he had um, recently joined the Panku Party. Then a lot of Panku members also defected with him, beefed up numbers in the opposition, and then was able to call the vote of a confidence, which is then successful.
0: Okay, so we have a bit of a sense of the parties as these fluid bodies that change, but what are the biggest parties that we should be paying attention to at this election right now?
1: Biggest parties would be uh, the People's National Congress, the Pete O'Neill's party. They have about 93 nominations for about 118 seats. Pangu, which is uh, Marape's party, has about 75, I think, from the last count, candidates um, nominated. And the National Alliance has about 60, 62, 63 So these are powerful parties, which means they're parties that um, endorse candidates in more than half the nation's seats. So half would be 59 seats at this point. Um, The United Labour Party is another um, large party, United Resources Party, and People's Progress Party, which is a party of uh, the former Prime Minister Sir Julius Chan in about the 90s, He's still contesting the elections, and that party's still around. And so these are the large parties that, yeah, are vying for power.
0: A lot of the other parties that might win seats might only win one or two, but some of these bigger ones will win, you know, maybe double figures in seats. Um, is there any evidence at all that voters vote on the basis of these parties? I did notice I was reading a paper about the preferential voting system that yourself, you're one of the co authors on. Um, where it was mentioned that um, Peter O'Neill's parties, their candidate, the PNC, their candidates in 2017, uh, a lot more of them were leading on primary votes and then were basically overtaken on preferences, which I, made me wonder if there was a bit of a, if not a vote in favour of a party, a vote like an anti-party vote, an anti-government vote. But is there is there much evidence of people voting because well, I, I don't like that guy because he's O'Neill's candidate, or vice versa.
1: Yeah, so there was an anti PNC bias. I think there was in twenty seventeen. Um, I think twenty uh, seventeen PNC was ahead by about thirty nine. Um, so that thirty nine candidates leading in the first preference count, and then twenty eight went on to win. So there was eleven candidates that lost in the after preference count, and. Uh, it, you'd have to go back to PNG's history, at least recent history. Um, 2016, so there was a protest at the University of Papua New Guinea. So students have protested um, against Peter O'Neill's government. Uh, I, I forget now what issue they were protesting against, but they did protest. They did try to march to parliament. They were met by a um, police force that basically barricaded the university. And then the police um, opened fire but shot. Um, at the ground, which a few bullets ricocheted and um, hit about eight students. So the students, um, after that protest, left um, on the Christmas break, went back to their villages. And then, yeah, it was basically an anti-PNC rally across the country in rural electorates that then led to the 2017 um, anti-PNC bias of the vote. So that was the students that really went out with the campaign awareness against PNC. Um, and, and you saw that at the vote. Now, that's the first time that's ever happened. Um, usually um, at seat elections, um, local issues tend to dominate or at least tend to influence voters. Um, but if you look back at PNG's history in 2002, there was a lot of um, economic distress so high inflation. Um, the the currency had depreciated in the years preceding that. There was negative economic growth, there's high unemployment. And there's also the sale of the PNG State Bank at the time, which was met with a lot of um, protest against that as well. And land reforms at that time that was unpopular. And so that led to a uh, sort of natural issues that tended to influence voters. And then they voted against the, the sitting governor, well, the party that was then in power. And so in 2002, and we're seeing parallels in 2022 as well with high inflation and high employment and negative growth uh, during the pandemic. But yes, so that's where national issues tended to dominate. Um, Voters don't vote um, vote, uh, along party lines. And it's uh, really local issues that tend to dominate with the anti-PNT bias in 2017.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about the voting system. Papua New Guinea uses the limited preferential vote, which they've used since 2007, before that first-past-the-post was used. LPV allows voters to number up to three boxes on the ballot. So it's not the same as the Australian system where we are required to number every box. We certainly have the option to number every box. Although I think the way the counting works is similar in that you do multiple rounds until someone has a majority. Um, But the other thing that's different is so many more candidates run. You know, we occasionally have seats in Australia where you get up to the mid-teens of candidates running, but the average in Papua New Guinea is about 30, right? So um, how does that play out, that voting system, uh, I know you've written papers kind of assessing its effectiveness, but how does it play out in terms of voters' understanding of how to number, um, how whether people use that vote strategically, you know, how those votes come into play and how much does that affect who gets elected?
1: The limited preferential voting system um, was introduced, well, it was voted in Parliament in 2003, but came into effect first in 2007. And so we have about three elections so far under the LPV. Um, It's a complex voting system compared to what we had before 2007, which was the first past the post system, which is basically a single preference, majority, um, or at least the candidate with the highest number of votes won, whether it was the majority of the electorate or not. Um, And and so because um, it was three preferences, um, voters, at least in the beginning, didn't understand the system so well. And so there are a lot of um, invalid ballots that were cast, which was still very low. It was about 2%. Are
0: voters required to number all three preferences?
1: Yes, they are. If they don't, then it's um, indicated as an invalid ballot when, it's, uh, when those are counted. Yes, there was a complex system. Um, candidates, uh, we saw violence fall um, before uh, counting, at least because candidates now, it wasn't a zero-sum game, right? Um, candidates weren't rivals necessarily. and um, They could strategically campaign together, and so campaign in other vote bases and gather a second or third preference. Um, and so that was the main effect of the LPV, less violence before the election, well, before the counting, and this same amount of violence but towards when uh, results were announced. Uh, the LPV system we've seen from at least um, from 2007, um, election costs have gone up. And the counting period has gone up. So first-past-the-post system was very easy to count. Um, With the um, three preferences, like you mentioned, um, it lengthens the time of counting. There's seven days allocated for counting in this election. But in the by-election that we had last year, there was about 21 days allocated to counting. And so... Yeah, it's, it's lengthened the time, it's increased costs, and it's um, it's been a complex system for PNG voters.
0: And it sounds like your assessment is that it's not that it's been a bad outcome for PNG. There may have been some benefits, but the benefits of it were very much overstated and it hasn't really achieved what people might have hoped it would have achieved.
1: Yes, yeah, so the, the main benefit that it was um, at least intended to bring was that violence would be lessened and electoral fraud would be lessened as well. That hasn't happened. Um, Electoral fraud um, has been the the same, at least since 2007, and has increased. Um, And electoral fraud, I mean that by roll inflation before counting, and then the number of votes cast that has exceeded the estimated number of voters at counting. Um, So ballot stuffing really after counting as well, uh, at counting, um, after polling. And also the number, um, violence, so violence we measured in the paper that you mentioned that I was a co-author of. Uh, there was 204 deaths in um, 2017, and there was 100 deaths under the first past and post-elections, That or the last first past the post-election 2002. So violence has increased, um, even though violence now tends to be post-election. So you can't say on the whole that uh, LPV is a better system just because of the outcomes. and uh, because The Solomon Islands has a very similar cultural system um, and has the the first-past-the-post system and was considering adopting the LPV system, at least the conclusion of our paper was that we couldn't recommend this um, electoral system to the Solomon Islands because it hasn't brought the benefits that was proposed or at least intended to bring.
0: It's not bad, but it's maybe not worth the trouble. Well, you mentioned the cultural system as, as well. Like these average 30 candidates, this is something I want to look at over the next couple of weeks. It's not the case that it's like two candidates are polling 40 or 50% and everyone else is polling nothing, right? You do tend to get quite evenly distributed votes and candidates elected off quite a low base of support even after preferences, right? Yes, yeah,
1: yeah and that, that's the case. Um, so if you look back at 1st past the first post system, um, on average, uh, the winning candidate had, like in 2002 and 1997, 20%. That was basically that person's electoral mandate. Um, it has increased under LPV to 33%, but the vote bases are pretty small still. And even after you gather the non-exhausted ballots when you're counting, um, the electoral mandate does not increase. so it's still a third of the electorate.
0: I'm interested a little bit in the mechanics of how you run this election, because the voting is over three weeks. Is it the case that voting is open in every place for three weeks, or is it more that each town or each electorate is voting for just a day or two? but it's spread out over time. Yeah, it's, uh,
1: so they go by region and then by province. So I think, um, if I remember correctly, I think it's Mamasi and then the highlands and the islands start the region and each state election gets about one to two days. It's one day in the highlands because a lot of the provinces and a lot of the state elections in the highlands are very violent and, and electoral fraud tends to be more prevalent there. And so it's, it's one day. Uh, voting in the Highlands, two to three days in other provinces, but it's spread out over a
0: three-week period. So it's not that you have three weeks to vote anywhere. It's it's a series of short election voting periods spread out across the country. It's a big effort, right, to get to, particularly in the Highlands, that some of these communities, people identify with a community that's a relatively small number of people, and um, getting all the voting materials in there, uh, getting everything to people to vote. Feels like it's a big effort, would be a big effort for any country to deliver that election to those areas.
1: It's a big undertaking, worsened by the fact that um, a lot of the electorates, like you mentioned before, are rural. Um, road infrastructure isn't great. And then um, the mobile network doesn't cover, well, it covers two thirds. And that's just um, the 3G network, 4G network with internet. There's about 40% of the whole um, country's landmass. And so it's it's, it's very difficult. And then um, particularly in the highlands where you have large number of um, groups of people from rival candidates that have a lot of power. So, so for example, uh, a recent estimate is that we've got 50,000 illegal firearms in the country. Most of them are in the highlands province. And we have a lot of uh, factions of rival candidates that are arming themselves. I've got reports in Hela province, for example, that there is a, a sort of an army with uh, factory made weapons that is um, starting to, or at least wants to hijack the, elect- the seed elections in Hela province. So it's examples like that um, where you have to really um, strategically place all your security resources, all your financing, all your electoral officials um, to at least try to deliver a fairly credible election. But then um, credibility is relative. And uh, yeah, it's, it remains to be seen how the elections will play out, particularly in places like the Highlands.
0: Do you think PNG would do better with a different voting system? You know, this system is very much locally focused and not focused on parties. A different voting system that was more proportional that would kind of force more party alliances, could that work? Or is this just the very nature of Papua New Guinea as a country made up of lots of local, very locally focused communities just I think kind of uh, needs to work this way? And think? this
1: would be my opinion. Uh, we should stick with the limited preference of voting system. Um, in that it's it's more democratic if you compare it to the first-past-the-post system. I doubt there's another an electoral system that would improve outcomes um, on the face of, say, for example, reducing electoral fraud, reducing violence. Um, and so the limited preference voting systems of voters have really adapted to it. Um, they understand it now. Um, candidates are strategically campaigning. Um, and it's increased the electoral mandate. So that's what I mean by more democratic in that from 20% on the first bus to post to 33%, which is the winning candidate vote share, which is the electoral mandate, say, um, that's, that's an improvement. So, and it's within government budget as well. So government has allocated about 600 million kina of uh, this year's budget to it, um, 200 million kina from donors. Um, and so that it's manageable, um, the security and electoral official resources are are up to the task, at least from what we've seen. And so that's yeah, uh, LPV for the the next few elections to come.
0: Final question: What do you think is going to happen?
1: <laughs> that's it's it's anyone's guess. Um, but again, um, uh, particularly in a place like PNG, where they they don't call it the level of an expected for nothing. But uh, there was 10,500 security officials in um, 2017. There's about 10,248 security officials now. Um, And with three armored vehicles, say, um, that still doesn't lessen the instances for violence. And so we're expecting violence on the scale that we saw in 2017. Um, Another thing that I'd just like to mention, uh, because... I did a lot of media interviews, and we're trying to stress this a lot. Uh, women representation as well looks more bleaker than it was in 2017. So there's about 176 candidates in 2017, spread across 111 seats. There's 142 women running in this election, spread across 118 seats. A so few women across more seats. None were elected in 2017. We're one of about four countries in the world without any women representation. And things are looking worse for women this elections, so yeah th- those are the two outcomes that I could um, place my money on that would be an outcome after the elections at least
0: Well, I would guess the gender representation is made harder by the single member system that you elect one person for an area, but it does seem like Papua New Guinea its political culture and its geography makes it really hard to have anything that's not single member. I would think that you know if you were trying to elect on a provincial or a regional basis, a group of people, um, the politics is very locally focused, so that would that would change things a lot.
1: Yeah, and it's very culturally driven, and um, we come from a mostly patrilineal society, um, and so people tend to vote against women, just um, the, the mindset that they were raised uh, in. Um, but we've got women, uh, there are other studies by Development Policy Centre that found that If women contest multiple times, they build political capital over time and they're more successful um, after, say, their fourth or fifth try. And and we're seeing a few female candidates with that sort of, uh, yeah, they're contesting the fifth time now. So, yeah, we're we're hoping they can win. Thank you so much, Beth, for having me. Uh, they, they can, if, if you Google my name um, and Low Institute, I've written a few articles for the Low Institute. I've written a lot more articles for the Development Policy Center. I've written a few articles for the Economist Intelligence Unit. So that's a paywall.
0: Yeah, the Dev Policy blog in general is a is a great place to to read about PNG politics.
1: Right. Yes. So yeah, the Low Institute Dev Policy and the EIU, if you subscribe to it.
0: And I will be doing a little bit of blogging about the PNG election. I don't think I'll be doing live results or anything, but there's a few interesting bits of data that I want to analyze. So keep an eye out for that. This is the last episode of the Room podcast for now. I'm going to be taking a break for a while. Uh, I'm going to be preparing my guide for the New South Wales state election. We'll definitely be back later this year with some podcasts about the Victorian state election. We're going to do another episode about Papua New Guinea once the new government is formed. So keep an eye out for that. But for now, this is going to be the last episode. So um, we'll see you soon. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Chris for writing the music here in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.